0: chapter 6, so we'll be looking at the first verses here of this chapter. Uh, We've just been going through chapter 5 and wrapped up the end of that chapter, which leads directly into chapter 6. And as you recall, Paul was admonishing, really, or not Paul, the writer of Hebrews. I I slip up and say Paul, and, and Brother Ken just loves it when I do that. He thinks that Paul wrote the book of Hebrews. I don't know who wrote the Hebrews since it doesn't tell us. I tend to think it isn't Paul just because of the style, but if I slip up and say Paul, whoever wrote the book of Hebrews will definitely forgive me because it's really God's word anyway. So, as we go on here, the writer of Hebrews has rebuked the people there at the end of chapter 5. They've become dull of hearing. They've become dull of hearing. And this is a great warning here. There's a warning about being dull of hearing, but also the reason for that is because they had not grown. They were still in an infant state requiring milk. And last week we were looking at this, what does your diet, what does your spiritual diet consist of? What does it require? If your spiritual diet requires milk, then you are spiritually immature. You're a spiritual babe. Then there's nothing wrong with being a spiritual babe. Everyone starts out their Christian life as a babe in Christ. But there is a problem with remaining a spiritual babe. We are to go on to maturity. And so here, the writer of Hebrews continues in chapter 6. And remember, as you read your Bibles, those chapter markings were added by editors later on. This letter was all just written out by hand. We come here to verse 1 of chapter 6. Therefore, leaving the principles of the doctrine of Christ, let us go on to perfection not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, of the doctrine of baptisms and of laying on of hands and of resurrection of the dead and of eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permit. For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and were made partakers of the Holy Ghost and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the world to come, if they shall fall away, to renew them again unto repentance, seeing they crucify to themselves the Son of God afresh, and put Him to an open shame. For the earth which drinketh in the rain, which cometh oft upon it, and bringeth forth herbs meet for them by whom it is dressed, receiveth blessing from God. But that which beareth thorns and briars is rejected, and nigh unto cursing, whose end is to be burned. Now, these first eight verses, it's going to take us a couple of weeks to get through these. But this passage in particular is one of the most, um, if you look at the wording, really one of the most dreadful passages of Scripture. And of all the scriptural passages that people have questions about, This is one of the ones that they question the most. What does this mean? The other one there in Hebrews chapter 10, there's another passage coming up in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 26 and 27, right around that area. Sin willfully after we've received the knowledge of the truth, there remaineth no more sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful looking for of judgment and fire indignation, which shall devour the adversaries. Verses 28 and 29, he says, He that despised Moses' law died without mercy under two or three witnesses. Of how much sore punishment suppose ye shall he be thought worthy, who hath trodden underfoot the Son of God, and hath counted the blood of the covenant wherewith he was sanctified, an unholy thing, and hath done despot unto the Spirit of grace. Verse 30, For we know him that hath said, Vengeance belongeth unto me, I will recompense saith the Lord. And again, the Lord shall judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. those two passages here in Hebrews, some warning passages very severe and uh, frightening the other The other passages that usually get the most um, most questions are well, what's the unpardonable sin or what's the blasphemy against the holy ghost and um, but these are passages that cause people to question what does it mean um, there's some severe language in here I mean. When you look at that verse 4, for it is impossible, and it connects right, if you're diagramming that sentence, it connects right into verse 6, it is impossible to renew these people again unto repentance. Who are these people? What did they do? What happened? What's going to happen? A lot of questions here come up in this passage. Um, Chapter 12. I'm going to give you one other passage here in chapter 12, that warning speaking of Esau. Remember Esau. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 16 and 17. Lest there be any fornicator or profane person as Esau, who's, who for one morsel of meat sold his birthright. For ye know how that afterward, when he would have inherited the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place of repentance though he sought it carefully with tears. It's quite a passage. No place for repentance, even though he sought it and cried. Now, remember, this book is written to Hebrews, to the Hebrew believers. And in the early church, in the early... In the earliest centuries where there was so much intense persecution. There were times when believers were put under persecution. There were those who would be you know, burned at the stake, thrown to the lions, killed and murdered in, in very horrific ways. But sometimes there were those who, under severe pressure, would recant, would deny the Lord and in the early church, um, there were those who um, believed that, though, that they who had, those who had recanted or taken back what they believed could not, under any condition, come back into the church. Um, there was Tert- Tertullian, I think was one of those who believe that, no, they can't be allowed back into the church because they have recanted what they believe. They are outcast. It is impossible for them to come back to the truth. And there were those who believed that they could return, but they would need to be rebaptized. And That was Cyprian. He was the one who believed that. And so there have been different you know, viewpoints here uh, you know, about those who would, under pressure, recant. And this is... Is this what this passage is talking about? Well, this passage leads us, and I'm going to give you really some introductory notes on it today. We'll look at this passage more in the coming weeks. But there is a basic disagreement. There's a basic disagreement between interpreters of the Scripture based on this passage. Is the passage describing people who are believers, Or is it describing people who have never believed? And your answer to that question is really going to dictate how you interpret this passage. Is the passage describing people who have been truly saved, or were these people never saved? Is the writer addressing believers or unbelievers? And really, this delineation, this dividing line is the line and the difference between Arminian theology and Calvinistic or Reformed theology. The Arminian looks at this passage and says, a believer can lose his salvation. We're talking about believers, people who knew the Lord. Who have come to this point where they can no longer be brought to a point of repentance, and therefore they can lose their salvation. Church of Christ, Church of God, you know, Wesleyan, uh, these, these um Arminian, people with Arminian theology. Well, the Calvinistic Reformed looks at this and says, Well, we believe that a true Christian can never lose his salvation. Um, It comes down to that last point, the the perseverance of the saints. So therefore, if this passage is speaking about someone who cannot be renewed to a point of repentance, then obviously it had to be a person who was never saved. And so this basic disagreement causes interpreters to look at this passage differently. And I even read a third view. A guy that had his foot in both camps. He says the Arminians are right on the first four points and they're wrong on the last point. And what he said is, um, simply put, that no, these are believers. And when you come to this, you know, falling away and this unable to renew them to repentance, it's talking about fruitfulness. And, you know, being burned up, it's talking about their works and being saved yet so as by fire, as Paul says in Corinthians. And so he was drawing out his belief that this really isn't talking about unbelievers, it's talking about believers who though they're saved their lives are unfruitful. And and he laid out a, he laid out a good argument. Okay. We'll probably get to that type of a conclusion next week. So make sure you come back next week. You're really going to want to hear what we have to say here. This is my teaser for all of you. Make sure you come two weeks in a row. You want to get the truth. Don't just come every other week. You'll only get half of what I, what I, what I believe. And you'll probably come to the wrong conclusions. All right. Now, so there's this basic, basic disagreement. There's this dividing line. Is he speaking about believers or is he speaking about unbelievers? I mean, is unbelievers or believers? Now, there is something, though, that we can all agree on. There are points of agreement in this passage, and I want to take a note of these. Who is this passage for? Who is this passage for? Who does it apply to? When he says that it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and were made partakers of the Holy Ghost and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the world to come. Look, if we look at those things, who is he? Who is this passage for? Well, obviously, this passage would not be applicable to a person who has never heard the name of Christ. Here's the absolute pagan who is unbelieving, who has never heard of Christ. This passage is not referring to him. Look what it says. We'll look at the characteristics. There are five different characteristics. Once enlightened, tasting of the heavenly gift, partakers of the Holy Ghost, tasting the good word of God and of the powers of the world to come. So we're not talking about some pagan who has never heard of Christ. That passage does not apply to them. This passage is also not for a person who has repeatedly rejected the gospel message. Listen, there's hope for the pagan. There's hope that someday he would hear the gospel and come to a saving knowledge of Christ. What about the person who has repeatedly rejected the gospel message? Well, there's hope for him, too. Does everyone only get one chance to be saved or one chance to hear the gospel message? Not usually. Now, it may be that some persons only had one chance, but usually, you know, people will hear it, and now they resist it. I mean, look at the life of Paul. Now, he was fighting against God, yet there was hope for him, and God gloriously saved him. So who... Is this passage addressed to? Well, who has he been talking to? Who's he been talking to back in chapter 5? He is addressing people who have at least at one time or another called themselves Christians. However, at this point, if you come to this point here in verses 4 through 8, there is that now no Hope. There is now no hope for them. It is impossible for those who were once enlightened. And he gives those five, five descriptions. It is impossible, verse 6, if they shall fall away to renew them again unto repentance. It's impossible. And then look, as he gives an illustration, verses 7 and 8. He gives an illustration from nature. That which bear thorns and briars is rejected and is nigh unto cursing. And by the way, that doesn't mean almost. No, it means the curse is coming. It's nigh unto cursing, whose end is to be what? To be burned. Destruction. And so here the passage is addressed to people who have at one time or another... Identified, self identified, there's a term for you. They've identified as Christians, brethren. But now, there's no hope. There's been a profession. And I'm reminded, as I say that, I am reminded of what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7. Can a person be a professor of Christ? Can he profess to be a Christian and not be saved? How could it be? Well, what did Jesus say back in Matthew chapter 7? Take your Bibles. You want to see that passage, Matthew chapter 7. Jesus said in verses 21 through 23, Not one that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven. But he which doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. Many, look at that word, many, that means a lot, not a few. Many will say unto me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name and in thy name have cast out devils and in thy name done many wonderful works. Lord, we perform miracles in your name. We did many wonderful things in your name. And what is he going to say? And then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. Those are some pretty frightful verses. Those are some strong verses. Notice what he said in verse 21. Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, not everyone who professes my name is saved. Not everyone that professes my name shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but who will? Who will? What does it say in that verse? It says, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. How strangely familiar that sounds. Go back to Hebrews chapter 5. Hebrews chapter 5. Verse 9, speaking of Christ and being made perfect, he became the author of eternal salvation unto whom? Unto all them that call themselves by his name? No, unto all them that what? What's the next word? Obey. Unto all them that obey him. It's exactly what Jesus said back here in Matthew chapter 7, verse 21, but he that doeth the will of of my Father, which is in heaven. Let that sink in. Let that sink in. Now, we see the basic disagreement. There are interpreters who say, this is a person who never was saved, or this person who was saved. This is something that says, well, you can lose your salvation. Another person says, no, this can't be that, because you can't lose your salvation, so therefore it can't be a Christian to begin with. But we agree that obviously the writer is addressing people who have at least at one time or another called themselves Christians, called themselves brethren, because of those five descriptions given in, verses, in verse 4 and 5. So, the passage is for us. Do we call ourselves Christians? Do you call yourself a Christian? Then this passage is for you. This passage is for me. This passage is for us today. Don't say, oh, well, this won't apply to me because I, I, I know I'm saved, so therefore this must be for somebody else. I can tune it out or I can just listen and enjoy this. No, this passage is for us. And it, listen, Or it wouldn't be relevant. Now, what is the central message? What is the central point of this passage? Let's go back to verse 1. This is very important that we see what is the central message here. Chapter chapter 6 and verse 1. Therefore, leaving the principles of the doctrine of Christ, let us go on unto perfection, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God. What is the theme? The central point is this. And you may have a different version. Let us go on unto perfection. That word perfection does not mean sinless perfection. That is not what it means. It is talking about maturity. Let us do what? Let us press on to maturity. Who is he addressing? He is addressing people who have reverted in their Christian lives. They've been backsliding. They have become as babes again. They are needing the sincere milk of the word. They need the basic teachings. The writer of Hebrews has rebuked them because he says, I can't go on and teach you. I can't give you strong meat. I have much to say about Melchizedek and about the type there of Christ. But in 5.11, he says, of whom we have many things to say and difficult to teach or hard to be uttered. And why? Because the material was so difficult? No. He says, because you have become dull of hearing. This is a condition that they had become. They had not always been dull of hearing. They had already been taught the first principles, the basic principles of of Christ. He says, you have become dull of hearing and you are now needing milk. And everyone that uses milk or everyone that requires milk, in verse 13, he says, is unskillful in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. A babe. Now, so this passage is for us. We call ourselves Christians. The central passage, the central theme here is, let us go on to maturity. Maturity. The central theme is: don't ever. The, it, the central theme is not: don't ever sin again. There Are people who went on sinning, and it was impossible to renew them? No, that's not what the passage is saying. The passage is not saying: if you continue to struggle against the same sins, it will be impossible to renew. No, that's not what the passage is saying. The passage isn't saying: if you ever question a doctrine, you will. It'll be impossible. To renew, no, it's not what it's saying. And usually when people come with questions about this passage or problems or they're struggling with this passage and it really is troubling their soul, it's because they're struggling with a sin and they're concerned about the personal application of these verses. Is this referring to me? Could could I be in this position? You know, I'm struggling with the sin. Is it because I can't come to a point of repentance? Is that my problem? Am I, he, do these verses refer to me? Well, again, the central theme here is let us press on. Let us go on to perfection. Let us press on to maturity. And this is the central message. And there is a great warning if we do not press on to maturity. <clears throat> Now, let us go on to perfection. The verb there is actually a passive verb. It is a passive verb. And then we also note in verse 3, and this we will do if God permit. If God wills, we will do this. We will go on to maturity, God willing. We are dependent upon God. And so this this is the passive verb let us be carried forward into maturity. Let us be willing participants. Let us be active. And we see not only God's side of this, but we also see our responsibility in in the maturing process, in the sanctification process. We are not to resist the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. We're to press forward. Paul says, you know, forgetting those things which are behind, I press toward the mark. Yet at the same time, we are to be carried forward. And it is the work of the Holy Spirit working through the word of God to bring us to conformity to the likeness of the Son of God. That's the sanctifying process. Now, so God willing, let us be carried on to maturity. According to the will of God. And the warning is this. And listen carefully. The warning is this. If you do not go on to maturity. If you do not go on to maturity. You risk falling away. You risk falling away. And that word to apostatize. We'll talk about this next week. But falling away. You risk falling away. And to come to the place where a return to repentance would not be possible. Falling away. Now, this is the second part. This is the warning where he says, Don't fall away. Don't fall away. If they shall fall away, verse 6. The backslider. The backslider knows how close he comes to falling away. Have you ever been at a point in your life where you were just, you know, spiritually, felt like you were in the dark, really no interest in the things of God, no interest in the people of God, hard a pray? pray, what's the use? And how close the backslider comes to falling away. And if there is no desire to grow and to go on to maturity, the question must be asked: Was there true faith ever to begin with? And remember, fruit, fruit always reveals the root. Fruit always reveals the root. So here, the theme. There is a need to go on to press on, to be carried on to maturity. Now <clears throat> There are three different aspects here in developing this passage, this message of grow up or risk falling away. Grow up or risk falling away. And he says here, verse 1, Therefore, leaving the principles of the doctrine of Christ, let us go on to perfection. Let us press on to maturity, not laying again the foundation. Not laying again the foundation. The foundation, our position, what is our position as believers? Verses 1 and 2, verses 1 and 2 explain our position. Believers ought to have a settled position in regard to the fundamental doctrines of the faith. In fact, as he's talking in this passage and as it refers to the Hebrew believers, he is talking about their fundamental doctrines or their position about the Messiah. There's to be a settled position toward the basic doctrines. And the writer says, listen, we need to leave those. He didn't say we need to forsake them, but he says we need to go on from those and build on the foundation. We need to leave these fundamental doctrines and go on. Again, not forsaking, but moving forward. Not relaying the foundation, but building on the foundation. And so there's this position. Leaving the word about the beginning of the doctrine of the Messiah. Therefore, leaving the principles of the doctrine of Christ. Remember, what is Christ? The word Christ there means Messiah. It's not Jesus' last name. It is another name for Christ regarding His position, who He is. He is the Messiah. Go on to maturity. means my position toward the basic teaching of the Messiah must be settled. If we're going to go on to maturity, who is Christ? Are you settled on what the Scripture says about who Christ is? In Acts chapter 2, as Peter was there preaching on the day of Pentecost, he preaches and he tells and reveals who Christ is. What does he say in Acts chapter 2? It's a great example of the basics concerning the Messiah or concerning Christ. Acts chapter 2 in beginning at verse 22, Ye men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man... Jesus of Nazareth. Let me introduce you to Jesus of Nazareth. Was Jesus the only person named Jesus in those days? Probably not. And that's why he was known as Jesus of Nazareth. That Jesus. Amen. And he goes on, he says, describes him, approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs. God put his stamp of approval on his son, Jesus Christ. Here's Jesus of Nazareth, the man, approved of God. This says, approved by wonders and signs which God did by him in the midst of you, as ye yourselves also know. Verse 23, him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, ye have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain. Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus was crucified and died. But not only that, in verse 24, "...whom God hath raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that He should be holden of it." Not only was Jesus Jesus of Nazareth a man whom God approved with miracles, but He was crucified, He died, but He rose again, the resurrection." And then as you go on further in the passage, you come down to verse 32. This Jesus hath God raised up, whereof we are all witnesses, therefore being by the right hand of God exalted, and having received of the Father the promise of the Holy Ghost, he hath shed forth this which ye now see and hear. And there, here, the Messiah's glorification at the right hand of the Father. Therefore, leaving the principles of the doctrine of Christ, who is Christ? Who is He? Those are the basics. He is Jesus, the Son of God, who died, who was buried, and rose again. Now, listen, we we, we come around uh, Easter Sunday, we talk about the resurrection, and it's a great truth. But, and it's, the Bible talks about the resurrection of Christ as really the, one of the cornerstone, the cornerstone of Christianity. We serve a risen Savior. And we're not rejecting or neglecting that principle, but he says we need to move on, not having to continually reiterate that because that is something that should be settled. That is a doctrine that should be settled. Therefore, leaving... The principles of the doctrine of Christ let us go on to maturity, not laying again the foundation. Again, leaving these elements does not mean abandoning them, but rather not just being preoccupied with the basics, but building upon them. You know, there's some churches you go to, and what do you hear every Sunday? It's the same gospel message. There's nothing wrong with the gospel message. It is absolutely essential. But if that is all your diet, you're not going to mature. Growth and maturity are the evidences of being in the faith. And so he says, not laying again the foundation of, and then he mentions six things. What are the basics? Talking about the doctrine of Christ, and then he goes on and he says, not laying again the foundation of what? Well, he lists six things. First, repentance from dead works. Secondly, faith toward God. And then in verse 2, instruction that there, it says, and of the doctrine, here's some doctrines. Baptisms, laying on of hands, resurrection of the dead, eternal judgment. Four more things. Each of those things is instruction are talking about instruction. And I want you to note <clears throat> there, are, there are six things that are the basic theological foundation. Now, as you read that, you're thinking to yourself, hmm, baptism's okay. I, I, mean, I know what baptism is. Laying on of hands? Why hasn't Pastor Roland brought a message on the doctrine of laying on of hands? Whoa. You know, I, 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 my neighbors go to the Church of Christ. And they talk about that all the time. Or, you know, the Pentecostals and this laying on of hands. I wonder where he's going with this. Well, s- stick around. Okay? So here are these six items that he gives. that he does not want to have to go back and reiterate and reteach the basics. Let us go on from these to maturity. Well, let's look at these. First of all, the, this foundation, the repentance from dead works. Repentance and faith toward God. obviously, these two items are absolutely fundamental to being a Christian. They're absolutely fundamental, and this is something that's eternal e- internal, eternal, yes, eternal consequence of it is something that's e- internal. Repentance from dead works. what are dead works? Well, to help us understand what he's talking about with dead works, is we turn to Hebrews chapter nine, look over in Hebrews chapter nine and verse 14. In chapter 9 he's talking about the sacrificial system he's talking about the offering he's talking about the ashes of the heifer sprinkling the unclean and sanctifying to the purifying of the flesh these Old Testament believers and the rituals that they would go through through their religious the religious system that God had appointed and there were these washings these cleansing with water that had the ashes of an heifer it cleansed It was the purification of the flesh, the symbolic cleansing there. In verse 14, though, he says, How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? What are dead works? Well, dead works, simply put, are sin. Sin, works of death. Works that bring forth death. What does Romans 6.23 say? For the wages of sin is death. Sin is dead works. What was the message of John the Baptist? Repent. Repent. Turn from your sin. Repent. What did Jesus say when he came? Repent. 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 So repentance from dead works, turning from sin. And this is fundamental. You cannot be a Christian without repentance. And of course, repentance is required in turning to faith. Faith toward God, repentance from dead works and faith toward God. Faith in God, believing what God has said. Believe what God has said, in particular here, about Jesus the Messiah. Jesus is the Messiah. This is the basics. These are the fundamental doctrines. Repentance from dead works, faith in God. And, of course, the testimony later on in Hebrews of chapter 11 of all those who did believe, those who put their faith in God's Word. This foundation should not have to be laid again. You know, one thing I notice in counseling, a lot of times when, <coughs> excuse me, when someone is in, in need of counseling or they're having uh, you know, some real struggles with a particular sin, you know, they'll come, and, and this should be true of any good counselor. What is one of the first, what is the first thing we do? Well, the first thing I do when I want to counsel someone is to establish, are you a believer? Have you repented? Have you turned to Christ? Repentance from dead works and faith toward God. This is the basics. And obviously, this is where you've got to start. And this is where the rebuke here, back in chapter 15. We have to go back to the milk. You're in need of milk. And so this foundation should not have to be laid again. Repentance from dead works and a faith toward God. And then these next items, the next four items, items of instruction. It's matters of instruction. And the first two are there. The doctrine of baptisms and of laying on of hands. What are these two? These are instructions, matter of instructions, and they were relevant to whom? To the Hebrews, to the Jews. That word baptisms, some think, oh, well, I know what that means. Baptisms. He's talking about what is he talking about? The water baptism of the believer is that the basic, or is he talking about uh, maybe he's talking about the baptism of the Holy Spirit? He's not talking about either of those. That word baptisms simply means washings. Washings. In the in the context here, and if we go back to he- again, if you go back to Hebrews chapter nine. What's he talking about? <clears throat> Verse 13, for the blood of bulls and of goats and the ashes of an heifer, sprinkling the unclean, sanctifying to the pure, to the purifying of the flesh. And how often throughout the Israelite and in the Old Testament economy, in their religious works, in their whole, all of their religious services at the tabernacle or at the temple, there was all these different washings. And what symbolically would the Jew need to understand about all of these different washings? What did they point to? They need to under, the Jews would need to understand, these Hebrew believers would need to understand the symbolic nature of these washings. It mainly dealt with the Jewish people. It was dealing with the Old Testament sacrificial system. Of course, there in verse 10 of chapter 9, he says, which, talking about the ordinances which stood only in meats and drinks and divers washings, or various multiple washings and carnal ordinances imposed on them until the time of Reformation. That word washings, there's the exact same word he's using here in chapter 6 and verse 2. Washings. Not only that, these Jews needed to understand the significance of these washings. How How did they point to Christ? What was the significance of them? And then the doctrine here of laying on of hands. This, again, had to do with sanctification. A lot of times you we'll read in the, in the Scriptures that you know, after they would believe, they'd be baptized, and the apostles would lay their hands on someone, and then they would receive the Holy Spirit. We also see that many times the apostles would go and they would lay their hands on someone, and they would be healed. That's not what he's talking about. That's not what he's talking about here, the doctrine of laying on of hands. Laying on of hands takes us back... To the, remember, he's writing to Hebrews. And it takes us back to the Old Testament sacrificial system. And if we go back to Leviticus, if you have your Bibles, turn back to Leviticus. I want you to see this Leviticus chapter 1. Leviticus chapter 1. Here's the burnt sacrifice. One of the Israelites comes. They're all required to do this. And they bring the sacrifice. He brings it to the door of the tabernacle of the congregation before the Lord. In verse 4, And he shall put his hand upon the head of the burnt offering, and it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. Laying on of hands. The person bringing the offering would put their hand on the head of the animal to be offered. Chapter 3. Just go over a page and look at verse 2. Well, verse 1 says, And if this oblation is offering be a sacrifice of peace offering, he shall offer it of the herd, whether it be a male or female, he shall offer it without blemish before the Lord. In verse 2, And he shall lay his hand upon the head of his offering and kill it at the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. And Aaron's sons, the priest, shall sprinkle the blood upon the altar round about. Laying on of hands. Chapter 4, and verse 4, the person who there's a sin offering, verse 3 says, If the priest that is anointed do sin according to the sin of the people, then let him bring for his sin, which he has sinned, a young bullock without blemish unto the Lord for a sin offering. And he shall bring the bullock unto the door of the tabernacle of the congregation before the Lord, and shall lay his hand upon the bullock's head, and kill the bullock before the Lord. Finally, in chapter 16, Leviticus chapter 16 speaks about the high priest going in once a year, offering the sin of the, the the offering of atonement for the sins of the people. And he was to lay both of his hands upon the head of the animal before he killed it. This doctrine of laying on of hands and what was going on? What was the symbolism there in the Old Testament of the children of Israel laying their hands on the head of the animal? It was symbolic of of their sins being transferred to the sacrifice who was to die in their place. And the Jew needed to understand the significance of this as it referred to the Messiah. We talk about our sins being imputed to his account. Of course, his righteousness imputed to our account. And so here are these basic teachings, these basic doctrines, the laying on of hands. Did not have to do with New Testament healing, but these things were pointing toward the work of Jesus Christ, the Messiah and then he adds on here he says at the end of verse 2 and of resurrection of the dead and of eternal judgment talking here about end time events end time events the resurrection eternal judgment now these were matters of instruction but these were basics these were the foundational doctrines that these people should have known They'd been instructed in these things. And the writer of Hebrews is saying, let us leave these things. We're not forsaking them, but we need to build upon them and go on to be carried forward in our maturity. He says, I have many things to teach you. And he does. After this rebuke, he goes on and he picks up where he left off with Melchizedek in the beginning of chapter 7. And Hebrews is so full of rich doctrine and of meat for the believer. But if we have a preoccupation with the milk of the word, if our necessary diet is simply these basic doctrines which have to be reiterated, then we're going to really struggle with what he has to say in the rest of this book. And the great danger there, the great danger is that if you do not go on to maturity, it may be indicative that you are lost. If they shall fall away, it is impossible to renew these type of people to repentance. And the only way to be sure that you're not one of them is to prove it by what? Growing. Maturity. Going on. And so going on to maturity means that we move on from these basic teachings that we have come to accept and believe. So, Warnings for people who would seem to be content just to be saved. Well, I know I'm saved, and that's all that really matters. No, that's not the attitude that Scripture here is indicating worthy of a believer. As you look back over your life, do you see growth? Do you see maturity? Or have you become complacent? Well, I've got my ticket to heaven. I know I'm saved, so therefore... I'm good. Now, there's a great warning here. Let us not stay put. Now, next week, we're going to go on, and you may even go away with more questions this morning after listening to this. Next week, we're going to go on and look at what he is saying here in verses 4 through 8. What does he mean there? It is impossible for them who were once enlightened. And then he gives, there are five descriptions given. Once enlightened, tasting of the heavenly gift, being made partakers of the Holy Ghost, tasting the good word of God, and, by implication, tasting the powers of the world to come. What are these descriptions? And if it's true of these people, and they fall away, how did that happen? How can someone who has those five experiences, how can they fall away? And if they fall away, how could it be that it is impossible to renew them to repentance? Impossible for whom? What does it mean to crucify to themselves the Son of God afresh and put him to an open shame? Now, what I want you to do this week, though, is I want you to go back and I want you to look at this passage. I want you to commit to look at it every day. And I want you to think about it. Pray about it. If you haven't memorized it, you ought to memorize it. A lot of you have been memorizing. So you've got this this passage in your head. You can think about it. Because he goes on and gives an illustration from nature in verses 7 and 8. There is a great illustration of what he has just been talking about. And there's a lot of scripture that comes to bear on verses 7 and 8. Here's the illustration of the earth, the rain that comes upon it, and what it bears, and the end of these two different plots. And I want you to go home and I want you to think about these things. Study it. Come prepared next week to hear, because we're going to talk about what these things mean and who is the writer talking about. Is he talking about a believer that loses his salvation? Is he talking about an unbeliever that never was saved? We don't have time to get into all of that today. It would make a really, really long message. So we're going to come back next week. Now, I won't open it up for questions because you can't have questions until we finish. But in our next discussion, which will be the beginning of April, we should have a very good discussion session, especially after going through this passage. This is a very important passage. It's a severe passage. The language in this passage is, is not one that you just kind of read lightly and just go on. Well, I, No, it's one that grabs, it, it grips you. It grabs your eyes. It grabs your attention. We need to make proper application. But again, let me remind you, the theme of this passage is let us be carried on. Let us go on to maturity. Listen, that's what, that's what God wants for each one of us. He wants us to be maturing Christians. He wants us to be bearing fruit and going on, not just stagnating, not going backwards. And that was the rebuke at the end of chapter 5. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the, the scripture that you've given to us. We thank you that you've given us your Holy Spirit to help us to comprehend, to understand, and to rightly apply the word of God. Lord, as we look at this passage, Lord, we ask that you'd give us wisdom. Lord, as we go back even this week and we meditate and think about what has been said, not only here from the pulpit, but also, Lord, what is being said there in your word. We pray that we'd not just read it glibly or um, see how it applies to someone else, but Lord, that we might see how it applies personally to each one of us. And Lord, may we make proper application. And may we go on to maturity in Christ. And we thank you so much that that is your goal for us. And Lord, you have given us all that we need to do so. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.